Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. And I'm Charlie Dane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science. In this episode, we're going to talk about something that's usually relegated to the background in science fiction and fantasy, and that's the city. We have characters who go to cities to learn magic, to get technology that helps them turn into super ninjas or like cyber killers or whatever. And cities are even sometimes characters. And yet we rarely think about how science fiction treats the city and what that tells us about where cities may be going in the human future. So we're going to talk about that. And we also have a special guest, Burrito Justice, who is a blogger and map maker who created a map of what would happen to San Francisco after 200 feet of sea level rise. about my favorite places in science fiction and fantasy stories, you know, most of them are definitely cities. And I feel like a lot of my favorite stories are kind of about the life of cities. But also, it feels like we think of cities as being the future in some sense. And why do you think that is? It's funny because cities have been part of human history for a while. You know, we have evidence of the first human cities going back about 9,000 years, depending on how you define cities, but, you know, roughly around then. Throughout most of that period, cities have been kind of an aberration. Most people have not lived there. There haven't been very many cities. And in the last 10 years on the planet Earth, we've gone through a transition in our in our human civilization where we are now a majority urban species. So the majority of humans live in cities and the UN did a study where demographers projected that this number is only going to rise. During the rest of the century we're going to see up to 70% of people living in cities, particularly in developed areas. And so I think that the city now has become something that is part of our future in a really fundamental way. And we're kind of, I feel like we're almost going through some kind of crisis as a species where we're trying to figure out what the hell cities mean to us because now we're this species that's urban. And a lot of my favorite narratives about cities kind of are about a crisis of some kind around the city where we're having to learn how to rebuild cities. You know, Kim Stanley Robinson's new novel about New York and a number of his other novels are about sort of refashioning the city. N.K. Jemisin's uh, series, The Broken Earth, which just like won every Hugo Award uh, for each of the novels is so great. That's actually, people don't think of the fact that that's actually a novel about cities and how people build cities to be resilient against disaster. And a big part of the book is about going to different kinds of cities and exploring how they respond to the natural disasters that kind of rack this planet. So we use cities to think about crisis and to think about how we survive uh, as a species. But there are also these like super magical places too. There's, you know, urban fantasy as a genre has really taken off, particularly in this urban age. And 
Some of my very favorite stories are about what Fritz Leiber called megapolisomancy, which is city magic. There's a number of books that deal with that idea. And I think to bring it all back, I think that's because the city is, it feels futuristic to us, partly because in a sense, it's not really. I mean, it's our present and it's something that's going to be shaping us more and more going into the future. And we just don't really fully know what that means. One of the really great thinkers about the future of cities is a sociologist at Columbia named Saskia Sassen. And she's written a number of books about what she calls the global city. And this is a new kind of city that really hasn't existed before. And a couple of years ago, she was visiting Germany and gave a talk uh, at a university there where she talked about what it is that she thinks is fascinating about cities. Frontier zones. Cities are frontier zones. Cities are made through people arriving, people leaving. Global cities are extreme frontier zones. What I mean by frontier zone is a space where two actors from different worlds encounter each other. The actor could be a firm, an individual, a project, a civil society organization. So they encounter each other, but there are no established rules governing that encounter. That is a frontier zone. Yeah, and I love her sort of idea that what makes something a city is that it's kind of all these different things coming together and that it's on the frontier. What I love about cities in fiction, especially in speculative fiction, is that kind of coincidences can happen there. You can run into people. People from different communities can run into each other. There can be meetings. There can be like different groups intersecting. But, you know, I'm sort of fascinated by this idea that as the human population grows in size, we're becoming more urban. And I feel like that means that cities are going to grow cities are going to get bigger. And the ways that they can get bigger are either density or sprawl or some combination of the two. And I'm curious, like, how does science fiction deal with this density versus sprawl or density and or sprawl question? It's a huge part of science fiction where we have a whole bunch of examples, like, for example, William Gibson's Sprawl trilogy, which is about basically the West Coast of the United States becoming just like one giant exurbian nightmare <laughs> called the sprawl, which in the then there's also uh, Mega City One from the AD 2000 comics featuring Judge Dredd, among other characters, which is about the eastern seaboard of the United States becoming one giant mega city with these huge towers in it. Mega City One is a city that runs down the entire eastern seaboard of the United States and it has about a 400 million population. The rest of America is pretty much a nuclear wasteland. Within the city are these immense buildings, these mega blocks. Each mega block is literally what we would think of today as a self-contained city and that's where the action of our film takes place. Okay, rookie, what do you know about peach trees? Sir, peach trees houses 75,000 registered citizens. It has the highest crime rate in sector 13, unemployment rate of 96%, and more than half the residential levels here are classed as slums. You know, at the same time, we have other science fiction fantasies like Ecotopia, which is an early 70s novel by Ernest Kallenbach, which is about reimagining the city to be just completely eco-friendly and the whole city is biodegradable and it's carbon negative and it's this the opposite of a sprawl right it's it's kind of low density farmland plus city 
I think that the fear of huge populations coming together and wrecking the earth is kind of what underlies all of those stories, that there's this kind of this idea that either you're going to have kind of a garden city where everything is green or you're going to have mega city one where everything is terrible. And the thing that's interesting about Saskia Assassin's work is that she's intrigued by how global cities, and I think it's interesting when she talks about the frontier, being people meeting not just other people, but meeting firms, by, by which she means companies, and and meeting non-governmental organizations, that cities are places where corporations kind of become entities that interact with us, and that the, the global city, which is the city of today and tomorrow, is really a place where it's not just about the physical footprint, it's about finance, it's about a technological footprint, it's about all of the information flowing through that space that you can't see. So that every city is kind of wreathed in this like information flow. And there's a great novel that just came out from Tade Thompson called Rosewater, which I highly recommend that you check out, which is basically playing with this idea. He's talking about, he's sort of talking about Lagos in Nigeria, which is represented in the novel as this sort of horrible sprawl. Aliens, of course, have come and because Lagos is so important and have planted a kind of domed utopian city outside of Lagos, which releases spores into the environment, which create kind of like a mycelial network. And (laughs) it allows people to some people to develop psychic powers. It allows people to engage with other people through this network in an invisible way. And so it's a little bit about technology coming to a city and changing the city invisibly. Uh, The other thing that these spores can do is sometimes they randomly heal people, so you suddenly don't have cancer anymore. So it's also kind of about biomedical technology as well. It's like what happens to a city when suddenly there's this technological overlay? I think that that's a really fun way to kind of explore the city is to think about it not just just as like a sprawl of buildings versus, you know, something that's in harmony with nature, but also like all of the invisible social relationships that kind of accumulate around the city. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to think about these metaphors in the context of gentrification. How does the promise of like the kind of like beautiful, smart, kind of self-aware cyberpunk city jive with with what the internet and information technology have actually done with our city, which is make it kind of in some ways less vibrant and less vital. Not to keep harping on Sasson's work, but she does deal a lot with gentrification. And one of the things that she says is that gentrification is the process by which kind of invisible footprint of high-tech finance and high-tech capitalism turns into a real footprint. So it comes into a city and it's kind of built on high-tech trading or um, high-tech products. And then the wealth that comes in because of that changes the city itself. So the city goes from being one type of physical structure to something much bigger, something much taller. The division between the rich and poor grows immensely. Uh, And that's something we're we're recording this here in San Francisco, where we see this every day, where we see just extremes of wealth and poverty on the same street. If you walk up Market Street, you can see, which is our central street in San Francisco, you can see the Twitter headquarters with homeless people sleeping in front of it. You know, there's nothing more literal than that. That is the high-tech city. 
And that's really the truth of the smart city. Like, I feel like a lot of science fiction deals with this idea of the smart city. And a lot of high tech companies kind of buy into this vision of a city that's perfectly run because everything is, you know, AI, everything is machine learning, you know, every sensors are covering every surface. So at any given moment, you know where traffic is or you know where your best friend is. You can always find the best deal on tacos because it'll pop up on your phone and it'll tell you how to get there. Um, And you can go in your self-driving car. You know, the reality of bringing tech into a city is that it, it has a very uneven effect. And we, you know, we don't see a lot of stuff in science fiction about cities having neighborhoods. Like we see a lot of stuff where rich and poor are living in the same space, but we don't we don't hear a lot about how different kind of immigrant neighborhoods or like hipster neighborhoods deal with the changes that are brought about by gentrification. It's funny, like I always think of Coruscant, the planet of city uh, from from Star Wars, which is at the center of a lot of the Star Wars mythos. I mean, that's where a lot of stuff takes place and a lot of battles happen. The way that Coruscant is built is that it has like a zillion levels. Like the whole planet is a city, but it's like a multi-layered city. So like level one is like the most underground and it's like the most horrible and it's like the ghettoiest ghetto ghetto. And like then each level up is like nicer and nicer and presumably wealthier and wealthier. And so I feel like That's what we see in so much sci-fi when you have a high-tech city. Like, it's either there's, like, a tall building with poor people on the bottom and rich people on the top, or it's a space station, like, down below station, a classic novel where it's, like, the kind of riffraff or, like, in the bottom levels of the station, and then the rich people are on upper levels. That's kind of the image that we have is that this is a high-tech city with rich and poor. And then all other forms of difference are gone. So there's no, like, Iranian neighborhood or there's no, like, geek neighborhood like Akihabara in Tokyo or whatever. Or maybe everything is Akihabara. I don't know. There's no queer neighborhood. There's no, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like actually urban fantasy is where you see more of that. You see so m- true. more of, like, this is the elf neighborhood. <laughs> this is the, like, goblin district or whatever. And I feel the like goblin. the, the <laughs> no, goblin, but that's so you know. real. Like, I was just thinking about, like... One of my very favorite representations of cities is in Saladin Ahmed's Throne of the Crescent Moon, which is set in a kind of fantasy Baghdad type city. And it's got different neighborhoods and there's environmental racism because they use magic to like pump stinky stuff from the tannery neighborhood into the poor neighborhood. That's like magic. They use magic to do that. Um, Whereas, you know, in the real world, they would just dump it or whatever. <laughs> they would just they would just dump all of their toxic waste in Bayview, which actually happened here in San Francisco. To me, the the kind of flip side of the whole smart city thing that you kind of mentioned is is surveillance, ubiquitous surveillance. And like cities in, in science fiction are often depicted as like loci of of ubiquitous surveillance and like our favorite show, Person of Interest. New York City is definitely a character in that show and it's represented through like millions of security cameras that are just watching everybody all the time. So I wanted to just ask you, kind of changing gears slightly, where do we see good representations of utopian cities, of like aspirational cities, like cities that you would actually want to live in? It's such a good question because I was thinking about it a lot leading up to to taping this show because I was like, okay, I need to be able to talk about cities that aren't just the minority report cities or whatever. And part of the issue is that when we think of a nice place to live, we often imagine a natural landscape. We imagine a village or a farm or something that isn't urban. However, there are a few exceptions. I think that the city of Wakanda 
is a fantastic representation of a heavily built up eco city. And it's something that is not it's not a blink and you miss it kind of thing in Black Panther. But, you know, we don't spend a huge amount of time kind of touring the city of Wakanda or whatever the major city is in Wakanda. We get several glimpses of a city which has high density. They have smart skyscrapers. They have maglev trains. I love maglev trains. So great. And that forms like an incredibly important part of the story because there's this fight scene on the maglev train. We know that they have incredible technology based on vibranium. And they also, at the same time, we have a street view of the city where we see that it's it's got a, a bazaar. You know, people are just selling food and textiles out of street vendor stands. And there's it's a, very, it's a walkable city. We see that there's public transit on the ground. There's people just carrying baskets around shopping. It's a kind of futuristic Jane Jacobs city where you can, it feels very human and livable while at the same time being very high tech. And we also see, very importantly, a lot of greenery. We see farms right there next to the city. We see greenery throughout the city. And again, this is a a signal, I think, that this is a utopian place to live because they aren't trying to build it against the natural landscape. They're trying to build within and around the natural landscape. And unfortunately, all of this is predicated on the fact that they are a separatist nation underneath like an energy dome (laughs) that (laughs) hides them from everyone else and that prevents anyone else from coming in. And that's often, you see that a lot in kind of false utopia stories like the movie Elysium, where you Mm -hmm. have this kind of space station city. But in Black Panther, we're not meant to see it as a false utopia, and it's not. It's a real city, there's real conflict, and they do have to open to the rest of the world eventually. So as I was saying, though, this is really unusual that we have a utopian vision of a city. And much more often, especially in science fiction, we see a vision of the future, which is really, I want to say, just sort of taken straight from film noir, that we have a very noir cast to these cities. Certainly a lot of the progenitors of cyberpunk or the founders of cyberpunk talked about being influenced by noir. I know that Blade Runner was really influenced by noir, and I think William Gibson was influenced by hard-boiled fiction. And so you've thought a lot about this, Charlie. Like, Why are we using the visual language of noir to talk about cities and science fiction. I mean, it seems kind of like that's a 1930s style. Like, why are we still stuck there? I used to be obsessed with noir fiction. I read all of Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and Ross MacDonald and a bunch of those. And Mickey Spillane. I read all of Mickey Spillane's novels, which are like very underrated. I don't think it would be possible for them to be rated any lower than they are. So they were pretty <laughs> much bad to be underrated. Although they were super popular. I, I want to love... add B. Traven. I don't know if you read B. Traven. No. Beach Raven is one of my favorite. But I love noir novelists. And I think that part of what it is, is that if you read all these novelists and also watch some of the movies from that time, they're just full of style. They're very stark. Everything is sort of like black and white or either that it's, no, or, it's literally or neon. Or, black and white. you know, it's either sort of very chiaroscuro or it's like Blade Runner. It's like neon lights and it's kind of sleazy and it's Times Square and it's like Taxi Driver or whatever. And I think that noir is just, it's a very appealing aesthetic. And it's also, it's a little bit macho. It's a little bit thrilling and it's exciting. And I think it's just, it's a fun thing to play with. But I also think that noir is 
incredibly dated at this point. And I think that part of what we should be trying to do in science fiction, in urban fantasy, in any kind of fiction that deals with kind of where cities are going is to kind of maybe interrogate whether we still need noir. I think that noir has certain base assumptions about like how cities are going to be dirty and crime ridden and full of corruption and, you know, kind of infested with darkness that A, are kind of problematic in the the ways that they kind of assume that putting a bunch of different populations together is going to lead to crime and corruption, but also B, seem very out of touch with reality, out of touch with the reality of like the, the fastest growing cities, certainly, and like the cities where people are actually increasingly trying to live in, which are not noir at all. They're kind of the opposite. They're they're too clean and too sterile and too nice and too kind of like shopping mall-ish. And I think that- Are you thinking of Singapore? I'm thinking of San Francisco. I'm thinking of Manhattan. Or, I was only or, bringing that up because we just saw Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah, <laughs> which I loved that movie. But I mean, you know, I was writing a noir urban fantasy set in New York and I spent a some time just walking around Manhattan trying to find locations where some of the stuff in my urban fantasy could happen. And I was like, well, this is all way too nice and way too, like, there weren't any dark alleys. There weren't any, I mean, I think if you go up to Queens or the Bronx or whatever, you could find a few spots, but it's way too scrubbed. It's post-Giuliani in New York is just, you know, Times Square used to be this kind of dark adult theater area where there was like sex and drugs and like illicit entertainments. And now it's Disney. And I think that that's like symbolic of how New York and cities in general have changed in the last 30, 40 years, but especially like the last 25 years, I think, especially. So I think noir is outdated, but I also think it represents kind of a disturbing misunderstanding of what cities are about. Yeah, I was thinking how so much of cyberpunk is influenced by film noir, but also hard-boiled writers, and how, you know, even like early well, what we would think of as kind of early sci-fi art films, like, say, The Day the Earth Stood Still, that's filmed in black and white. I was just thinking about how that was such a weird choice, because this is in the 1950s when Technicolor was like everything. You know, people were doing these crazy, lush, deeply colored films, like really red reds. And and then this weird sci-fi film comes along that changed a generation, basically, and it's very noir. Like, even though it's about an alien, it's got those smooth, clean lines of noir. It's shadows and light. And what that highlighted for me was how much cyberpunk is itself now kind of retrofuturism. It's about a future that we thought was going to happen during the mid-20th century. We started to see the destruction of that future like in the 80s when cyberpunk becomes really big. But cyberpunk is still kind of living in the trashed remains of that futuristic idea of these industrial cities kind of like Coruscant, where there's like the poor people and the rich people, and there's no other forms of diversity. There's just those two things. There's the gritty, shadowy, dark part, and then there's the rich part. We're kind of left wondering, like, what kind of a vocabulary do we use now to talk about cities? Because we're so, I feel like we're still really entrenched in that mode. You know, cyberpunk is kind of making a comeback. 
the interesting cyberpunk to me is the stuff that's actually dealing with machine consciousness and what robots think about their own lives. I think that, you know, noir is I like that too, Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, obviously like Autonomous and also Ex Machina and a bunch of other amazing things recently, the Murderbot books. I think that part of what noir has to offer, it is true that we live in a world where the gap between rich and poor is becoming more extreme and the middle class is being hollowed out and basically we're losing the middle class. And I think that that's accurate. I also think that noir has an interesting focus on kind of the mistakes of the past. Like some of my favorite noir books are about people who have secrets from like from the distant past from 20 years ago that are catching up to them. And the detective's role is to go and kind of uncover all of their dark secrets of the terrible things that they did that they covered up. And I think that that's an interesting thing to think about as cities get older and we build on top of atrocities and genocides and displacement. Like we're now all eagerly moving into areas where poor people have been pushed out by gentrification and displacement. I think it's an interesting metaphor. But at the same time, I think that we do need a new way of thinking about cities in speculative fiction that kind of moves us away from that like brooding loner who goes in and walks the crime-ridden, dark, rat-covered streets and then occasionally stops and has some really delicious noodles and then carries on. (laughs) I loved what you had to say about how cities are kind of layers of history and, you know, part of what Noir does really well is, is show us those historical atrocities kind of coming back. But the other big thing with Noir, as you said, is individualism. It's about like one person encountering the city. That's where I wonder if there's some, is there some alternative to that model, to that trope? Yeah. And I think it really gets back to what you were saying about neighborhoods. I would love to see more speculative fiction and especially more science fiction kind of following on the lead of of urban fantasy and focusing on cities as like places where communities gather and where characters are part of communities. And I think that in general, in 2018, we need world building that focuses more on how the community enriches us and supports us and defines us versus just like the individual versus society or, you know, the person against a backdrop. I think that really what I love about cities and what I want to see growing and being celebrated more about cities is this sense of community and of people coming together. One of the real strengths of Black Panther is that when we see Wakanda and we see the cities in Wakanda, it's about the community there. I mean, the, you know, many commentators who are much smarter than I am have already pointed this out and said, you know, this is really a movie about building community and building nations. And so I think that Again, I'm just going to keep saying Wakanda is the way forward for cities in terms of visual representation, but also in terms of thinking about what can the city mean. Here to talk to us a little bit more about that, particularly in the context of San Francisco, is Burrito Justice, who created one of my very favorite fantasy maps, and he's going to talk to us about that. We're here with Burrito Justice, who is a San Francisco blogger whose blog is called Burrito Justice. And he's also a map maker and a city historian. I've learned a lot about San Francisco history from reading your site. Yay. And um, but you also go by Burrito Justice. So should we should we call you Burrito or Mr. Justice? Or? Uh, Mr. Justice is my father. Uh, you can call me Burrito. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that you've created, Burrito, yes. that I think really was the thing that made me become a fan of your site and Yay. like read it all the time, was a map that you made, which is called the San Francisco Archipelago. Yes. And it's a highly accurate map of San Francisco after 200 feet of sea level well, rise. Pretty accurate map, yes. I mean, it felt very accurate. So. Not, not unaccurate. Certain liberties, <laughs> certain liberties were taken. Um, and also, I mean, you know, little things like erosion would probably make the map look different when you have a bunch of water lapping against things that were hills. But yeah, I mean, it was based on elevation. And while 200 feet is sort of probably pushing it for like, say, like all the ice on our fair planet melted. I think it started with, oh, what's her name? Mona, um, Mona Karen. Mona Karen. Yeah. We and the, and the canal, she had a couple murals with the canals and that got me thinking about canals. And then I was like, oh, what if Valencia Street was a, were a canal? And then it's sort of like I made this neighborhood map where, you know, tongue in cheek that, oh, if, you know, neighborhoods were islands. And then mm-hmm. that sort of went into, uh, which obviously elevation wise wouldn't work. Like, oh, elevation in San Francisco is kind of important. And then, like, mm-hmm. what would happen if, you know, various levels of sea level rise would happen? And, like, and rough estimates saying, oh, well, here's the 50 foot, 100 foot, 200 foot uh, elevation line. And sort of, you know, just filling that with blue, you know, below that was, you know, pretty straightforward. It's just more me amusing myself. And then I put it out there. It's like, hey, islands of San Francisco, archipelago of San Francisco. And then that basically went viral Mm -hmm. to my surprise. Luckily, I'd actually done some, a little bit of research just to say, hey, stretching it. But, you know, it's pretty clear. Mm -hmm. Um, The only thing, and I had a back out for this, uh, Mount Bruno down like between here. That's fairly big. And that's not quite on the map, but... I sort of cut it off at the border of San Francisco. Yeah. But what I did, as I said, that as sea levels rose, the backstory, Google went and as their campus got flooded down the South Bay, they leveled at 100 feet the mountain and they moved there. Then that got flooded, which is why it's not there on the map, clearly. And that's actually true to the history of San Francisco, where the entire marina district is landfill. Yeah. Mm -hmm. San Francisco hasn't done, like Seattle went big time on leveling out hills. San Francisco, a little less so. No, we just build on top of garbage. Precisely. (laughs) (laughs) There's some rocks and some dead horses in there. Into the swamp. Some ships. Let's build over the ships. Seattle definitely went on the, hey, let's wash down the hills. Because they had a very steep, even steeper now than kind of up from the water. Um, Which actually sort of raises one thing that I've thought about. Or basically what happened in, I think it was the 1890s, the main streets in Seattle were built pretty much at sea level. And then that kind of makes it hard to have uh, sewer pipes because when the tide rises... All your poo gets pushed up the pipe and right. floods your toilet. Yep. Um, and then they had an earthquake and a fire. And I, uh, no, sorry, just a fire. And they basically raised the streets up one floor, right? And so they had this thing where they raised the streets up like 10, 12 feet uh, so they could actually run sewer lines down there. And the first floors became basements and the second floors became the first floors. And huh. so you can actually walk under the sidewalks because stores were there. And basically that gradually eroded away. Not eroded away, but people said, hey, this is dangerous and gross. And <laughs> then they started walking on these new sidewalks. But they basically raised the whole city up 10 feet. And wow. I think it's like, okay, you know, 200 feet, obviously not. But I mean, I think you could seriously see, you know, 10 feet in the next 100 years, especially since like, oh, you know, the ice melt is accelerating. It's like, yep, it's called feedback loop, baby. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. And so, like, what happens when you have 10 feet of sea level rise in San Francisco kind oh, of thing? So you think one possible future for San Francisco is Maybe. that we build up one Maybe. level 
elevate the whole city. I mean, yeah. it really depends. Get rid of these pesky hills because nobody likes biking no. up those hills. No. <laughs> you don't need Twin Peaks. E-bikes. Come on. No, you get to fill. I, I don't know. But, um, so in your yeah. um, stories that you wrote kind of around mm-hmm. this map, you imagined a kind of network of ferries so that people would be living on and these islands and taking ferries, ferries in between and them. some bridges were built and taco boats. Taco <laughs> boats were very... <laughs> taco boats. Not burrito boats? Well, I mean... Obviously a burritos, but you know, it's like... Like you know, taco trucks. Just throw in some tacos right. too. Taco yeah. boats. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think that maps can tell a story that, you know, a written story or a movie can't tell? Like, is there something you can do with a map that you think, you know, hits people in a way that... It, like, if you'd just written I, a I short mean, story... Compared to a movie, because it's sort of, you know, like, oh, fills your imagination. You put your own story into it. And so that could be a little bit more than maybe a book, because a book's telling a story, right? It's pretty specific, and a movie even more so. Whereas a map is something you can see and study and look at, but you can also sort of fill it with your own story in a way. Sort of a nice little extrapolation tool, right? We're like, oh, look at this. Oh, okay, I like to sail over there. And if I were going and working on Knob Hill, I have to go drive over here and then take a sea bus over to this. And okay, well, how would that affect Muni? And would there be a restaurant on the other side and could I go grab a beer before I came home from work or would there be beers on the sea bus? You know, it's like <laughs> that kind of thing. You're like, oh, okay, like what would happen? So we've been talking a lot on this episode about dystopian cities versus utopian cities yes. and like the fear of density and sprawl and crime mm-hmm. and everything versus like the hope of like a smart Single eco city or whatever. You know, this happy eco city that's like right. smart and everything. What do you think makes a city utopian or what do you think makes a city futuristic in a way that's like desirable well i mean i'm canadian so canada's kind of the future i hope but no i mean sort of peace order good government all that kind of good stuff but what does that look like physically well i mean it's a lot of investment and actually spending money on things like high capacity fast public transit and stuff like that right but also courts and law and police officers who, you know, don't shoot people because they're scared, you know, that kind of thing where basically there's a, some sort of, I don't know, I think respect comes, it comes down to, because I think if you have a bunch of people who live next to each other, who don't respect each other, that's kind of dystopian there. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How can people find more burrito online? Probably Twitter is your best bet. I sadly do not update the blog nearly as much as I used to because so you're burrito justice on Twitter. Yes, yes, because right. of kids and time and, you know, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to see, you know, 280 characters or whatever worth of me, you know, venting about things and the future and burritos and El Camino. <laughs> you know, taco boats. That's the, that's the taco boats. That's the place to go. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you lot. so much. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining me. us. You've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. Please come back in a couple weeks and listen to our next episode. You can find us on Stitcher, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere where fine podcasts are found. And please do rate us and review us on your favorite podcast application because that really helps people find us and know what we're all about. You can follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. You can find us on the interwebs at ouropinionsarecorrect.com. And thanks to Veronica Simonetti at Women's Audio Mission for amazing engineering on this episode. And to Chris Palmer, who wrote us a new theme song. So see you next week. Or I mean, I'll hear you. Hear you in two weeks. You'll hear us in two weeks. (laughs) Don't forget to ride the taco boat. (laughs) 